0: So Pat loves me because of my book. I just love you because of you. And uh, you too, Mike. <laughs> um, no, it is uh, great to be with you guys. So thankful that we could uh, finally get to this point. We had to get Daryl Hart out of the way, you know. Uh, I-, I, was meant to, I was meant to be doing Friday Night, and apparently Daryl Hart, you know, original gangster that he is just uh, comes along and does whatever he wants to do whatever now we're all christians it's all good um let me before we get going and not to use too much of my time but just wanted to say thank you to pat and the team and just seeing everyone kind of serve i'm just very very aware of how many people are working so hard and serving and i know you guys are aware of that as well so let's all just offer them a, just a thank you thank you you know Really appreciate it. And uh, now it's my time to serve, which I'm thankful for. I'm very excited about this. Uh, and I am a, a theology nerd. It's true. Uh, I don't deny it. But what I do take exception to is that this is only for theology nerds. That's not true. This is something for everyone. We all need to be thinking about this topic. Uh, it's not one of those things that you just, oh, yeah, I know about the two ages because I had to read a book in seminary. And, you know, Dutch theologian or something, um, or because you know you've heard it tossed around here and there or whatever. You want to see this thing in the pages of Scripture, and that's what we want to do. We want to work together through the Scripture to see this, because I think once you see it, it's so exciting you can't unsee it after that, and it really affects everything uh, in terms of the way that you think about uh, salvation our role in the Christian life uh, and culture and so forth, as Pat was saying. So let me quickly pray with you, and, uh, and then we'll ask God to help us to see those things, and then we'll get started. Father, we give you thanks. We come now to this time just aware that a conference is so much fun and so, so great to hang out, but we want, to, we want to continue to grow in our understanding. We want you to teach us, Lord. We want to increase our perception of Jesus. We want to understand His glory some more. We know we can't understand it completely. We realize our own inability to do do any of that. It's, It's just we come now before You. We ask that You would be with us and just help us. Help us to see what we need to in the Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. so. What I want to do is start looking at this thing uh, in Genesis. So if you've got a Bible, please open in Genesis. Uh, the reason, it's kind of a little bit of a gripe that I have in that people think about eschatology or even the already not yet thing and they just want to jump straight to the New Testament. And that's, I understand that, all the actions in the New Testament, I get that, a lot of stuff going on, we'll get there. But like most other things in the New Testament, they're founded on Old Testament concepts and ideas and logic right? And it's no different when it comes to this. Paul wasn't just sucking it out of thin air and in this vacuum when he, when he was talking about what he did. He's thinking about these sorts of passages right up front in your Bible. And so my, my game plan is to use this session to just cover that foundational logic, just help us to kind of see where it's all coming from. And then once we've done that in the last session that I've got, I'll just kind of, we'll move through the the story of scripture and get the sense of buildup and then get to, you know, of course, what Jesus does in bringing in the new creation and the already not yet and inaugurated eschatology and all that amazing stuff. So, uh, if that, by the way, if that all sounds like reformed Greek Martian code to you, then don't worry, we'll work that this is what we're doing right here. Uh, Okay, five things I want us to see. I was, Pat came up with seven and this eschatology conference, genius. So I did, I did my best to get seven. I couldn't. I just, yeah, Oh yeah. five. How stupid is that? It's eschatology. Anyway. Um, I'm a weirdo. Um, so here's, here's the game plan, right? Number one, I want to look at these two trees right up front. Pat's already mentioned, you know, the tree of, of life and how important that is. Uh, let's look at that because what you see is, kind of the contrast of the two ages, really, right up front when you see those two trees. But then there's more. If you you consider the image of God or the pattern of the image of God, there's not only a contrast of the two ages, but this movement from one age to the age to come. And then it's not like we're all just happy that, you know, we could just choose an age and stick with that age. No, everyone wants to get to the age to come. And that is also shown right up front in this anticipation of of union in uh, Adam and Eve. We'll talk about that in a second. And then, of course, it all comes tumbling down with the tragedy of the fall, which is why we think about this age the way that we do and the predicament that we're in. And then, finally, the blessed hope, those words in Genesis 3.15 that, is why we're all here and talking about the two ages because there's still hope, right? So that's what we want to do. We want to just go through those five points, and we'll, and we'll hopefully that will uh, kind of kind of flow on and show you why this is so important. Starting with these two trees, Genesis two, chapter uh, ch- chapter two, verse nine. Uh, read it with me. Is the first time we see the tree of life. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And we know that wasn't the only tree. Very, you know, it's paired together with this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I won't spend too much time on the story because I think we mostly know basically how this works. Uh, you need any one of those trees, any one of that fruit, any, you know, anything in the garden, just don't eat of this one. right? Uh, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So right up front, you have this trial, this test, this probation. of so, Now, I'm just going to put two and two together and say, some of you know something about covenant theology because Pat this is the pastor and, you know, all that. He just wrote a book maybe about covenant theology. And, and so you'll know if you've looked at that, that this is very tied up with what covenant theologians call the covenant of works and this idea of of Adam's probationary period, right? But, and maybe we should also say that for that reason, Reformed theologians have been uh, happy to see in these two trees something already quite starkly representative of the two ages. At one level, you've got this this tree that obviously indicates some sort of probation, so it's bound up to this age, and there's another tree that seems to be beckoning forth to an age beyond probation, right? But I don't want you to think that it's like a thing that depends on you having to buy into covenant theology or something like that, because biblical theologians of all stripes, all traditions, I mean, they're all saying what we're talking about here is something fairly basic to the text, Um, they are all willing to acknowledge that there is an olam in view. In Hebrew, the, the, the age is, uh, is a very specific idea, a set of attributes which define a certain period. And of course, who could deny it, right? There's this death is a possibility. Even more, it's a, it's a sanction. It's a, it's a promise, right? If you eat of this tree, you will die. That's happening. It's on. So there's definitely an olam in view. And it's good, it's glorious, it's beautiful, but it's probationary. There's something that is a possibility you know, with death. But that seems very, very, very different to what has already been set up, even by the end of chapter 1 going into chapter 2, that is, you're being represented by this tree of life. Uh, if we look at the culmination of God's creative work, if you go to chapter 2 beginning there, uh, in verse 1, let's read from them. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. I've just been re- reading a book by a guy um, who uh, he's in the Chinese persecuted church, and he writes this, as a sculptor appreciates his masterpiece, God expressed great joy for the work of creation during six days. On the sixth day, the level of excitement reaches its peak when God saw the created world and exclaimed, very good! But good is not the same as holy and finished and consummated. The natural order of six days were good but temporal, good but unrested. And the seventh day was particularly reserved as the Sabbath of God and the eschatological goal of creation. It carries on in the text, verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. Just note how as sometimes it says the work that He had made or something like that, the things that He had made, making something and creating something are, are regarded as synonymous at this point, so just keep that in mind. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set apart. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done or that he had made, again, in creation. So we see there something, again, undeniably different in terms of its set of attributes. It's olam right? There is, there is uh, you know, we could ask, it's a big discussion, but what exactly, what exactly did God do when he entered into rest? Like, how does that work? We all know he didn't just stop, otherwise that would be the end of everything, Right? So what is this rest thing? And there are all all sorts of helpful things you can draw from ancient Near Eastern parallels and so forth. But I want to stay just in the text because if if you just notice something really simple, in fact, two little details, one of which we've already noticed in that the seventh day is set apart. It's consecrated. Something different about it, number one. And number two, you know, you read through chapter one and it's like morning and evening, first day, morning and evening, second day, morning and evening, third day. And then you, you get to the seventh day and you're sort of expecting the refrain again, obviously. But, but it's not there. So it's sort of left open-ended, right? So immediately you're thinking, okay, well, what is the seventh day thing? Uh, well, immediately you know it's something different from one to six. And it's something that kind of seems eternal. So it's, it's, it's holy, it's consecrated and eternal. What does that sound like? Well, thankfully we don't have to scratch our heads for too long because we can always just cheat whenever we want. We can just go to the New Testament, and then they tell us what, what to believe, and then we believe that. And, uh It's like the best exam in the world. You just cheat whenever you want. Just go to the New Testament. So Hebrews 4, of course, comes along, you know, and the author is talking there to Christians who want to leave the churches and, you know, abandon their salvation effectively and go back to the synagogues under the threat of persecution. So when he's talking about rest in chapter 4, we know immediately he's talking about the thing that, you know, the final goal of Christianity, the stuff we love, right? Heaven, the point of this conference, the whole thing. Without putting too fine a point on it. We're not talking about like a kind of version of heaven according to so-and-so. Just mean the thing that we all want, right? That's what he's saying. Guys, you're in danger of leaving that if you go back to the synagogues. So he says in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So immediately, you know, we're thinking about our rest here, right? And then he says, but just, you know, just be aware that this didn't just start in the New Testament. This was like right from the beginning, right from that text we were just looking at in Genesis. He says, verse 4, and remember, he's, He's opening a scroll or he's referring to a scroll, so that's why they say he has somewhere spoken of, they didn't have the versification, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And then he quotes our text, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then he reminds them of the predicament of Israel, that they had shown that they were no better than Adam. They too did not enter into that rest that was prepared for Adam. So it remains. And then even when it looked like they did, under Joshua, who was a profound type, right? There they are going into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. He says, even then, verse 8 in chapter 4, still in Hebrews. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Notice the pattern there come back to that. But we know then, because we cheated and we went to the New Testament, that whatever we're talking about in Genesis 2, it is a rest that continues on. It's a rest that wasn't entered into by Adam. It wasn't entered into by Israel. It was entered into by Christ, the true Israel, the true Adam, the lost Adam. And for that reason, can be entered into by Christians. And then, That's why when we get to heaven, or when we think about the book of Revelation that gives us this description, this uh, picture of heaven, we have Pat's message last night. We have the tree of life there again, which on its own, really, even without anything else is enough to just go, okay, wait a minute, if the tree is right there in the beginning and right there in the end… That alone tells me something's in view in terms of what this tree is summoning mankind to and the point of the Bible, you might even say. So these trees show that creation was not an end in itself, but a process toward that final end represented by the tree of life. And so with just those observations on the table, you really actually do have a kind of two-age contrast already in view. I mean, that is quite early on in the Bible, right? Uh, On the one hand, an age that is temporal, an age of works, an age of probation. On the other hand, an age that is eternal, an age of glory, an age of rest, right? Now, with that in mind, we're able to move from the contrast to a kind of movement, to, to go from the one age to the other in this thing called the image of God, the imago Dei, or more specifically, the pattern of the image, because the image of God is a massive, massive subject. Lots of people have said a lot of things about it. But I think it's kind of helpful to limit the discussion to the pattern of the image, right? Because I think everyone can agree that man was made in the image of God. says it. You have to agree with it. Sorry. (laughs) And then, the very first thing that man is given to image is this, to copy, is this movement that we've just been talking about, as God goes from work to rest, right? Quite a profound thought, right? The very first thing as man is made to copy is this. And so that's why we've already seen this in Hebrews 4. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's a, there's a pattern, there's an imaging there that is important, and that sets us up to understand things as we ought. Uh, Lee Irons, uh wrote this. He said, the seventh day, we have to understand, is a sign and a foretaste of creation's hope of reaching its consummation goal in eternal union and communion with the triune God. Michael Horton says the real significance of the imago Dei, the image of God, is found in the covenantal commission with which Adam was entrusted, namely to work in this age and then enter God's everlasting Sabbath, the age to come, with the whole of the creation in His train. Right? That's the movement that we want to notice. And in terms of, we've seen God's work that's obviously creating everything, chapter one, etc. cetera. Uh, what, is, what is man's work? That he's, what is he copying? What is he doing? What, is, what does he have to do to do the thing, right? Well, we've already spoken about this probationary idea uh, where he must not eat of this tree and so forth. But then we talk about the long range requirements as well, sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate, right? Where you see it in Genesis 1, right up front again. Uh, verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So it's kind of exactly what you might expect, right? He's imaging. Well, what does God do? He has dominion, He's the Lord. And here is Adam, a vice regent, made in his image, being called to dominion. And uh, he was to rule. I, love, I actually saw this last week. Thought I'd include this. I think this is amazing. Uh, Kent uses commentary. He said, "Adam was, poetically speaking, an august creature, with all things put in subjection to him, wearing the very sun as a diadem, treading the very stars like unconsidered dust beneath his feet." Whew. Well, there he is, Adam. You know, he's not God but he's made in the image of God. He's ruling over all as God's vice regent, And so, you know, as we might expect from that dominion mandate, as you go to chapter 2, you see him doing that, right? uh, Genesis 2, again, in chapter 2, verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Now, remember, to name something is significant anyway in the Bible. But in this context, wow. I mean, who has been naming stuff in chapter 1? God, right? The day, the night, sea, land. It's God having dominion. And now Adam is doing that thing which he was called to do in the image so that he could enter into rest. And great start, Adam. He's naming stuff. This is good, right? Just keep going. And he could have every reason to believe that he would enter into this rest. And so, put in terms of the two ages, as he labors in this age, he would enter the age to come. And before we move on to uh, to see the fall, there's one more thing I want to add in here, and that is this this idea, not only of the contrast, which he saw in the trees, and the movement which we see in the pattern of the image, but then this unitedness of Adam to Eve, and the anticipation of the age to come. This is an easy point to miss, but I love this. This is great. We see, of course, that his mandate involved not just having dominion, part of his work, so to speak, was to populate the world in the image of God, right? And, uh the union to his wife was the proper means, certainly, to, to, through which this dominion is going to be carried out and this population is going to happen. But what you also see is something of the anticipation of the age to come shown in this covenant. Because what happens is you have this horizontal covenant between Adam and his wife that kind of mirrors the vertical covenant, right? So God has made a covenant with Adam And now now Adam has made a covenant with his wife. So there's this kind of mirroring going on still. And of course, that's what marriage still is. It's like a a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship that points us to a covenant relationship that's a million times better Then you know, it's good news if you're married and your marriage is going really well. Then you go, oh, this is great, but I'm still going to get something better, right? It's even good news if your marriage is not going so well because something better coming. But I, I won't. Marriage counsel? Anyone right now? Right? Let's (laughs) let's keep to the task. But the point here is that it's a lucid pointer, and this is amazing because everything that we've seen so far is creation by division. This word bara in Hebrew—it's creation by division. Uh, God divides the light from the dark, divides the day from the night, divides the land from the sea, divides the waters from the waters. And we've said that the implication of that is that it's good, but it's waiting something. What is it waiting for? The removal of, div- of the division, the union, in other words. This is a shorter word to summarize that concept. The union, a covenantal union, a consummated union is what is in view there. The creation is waiting for the removal of division and the bringing in of a covenantal union, a consummation. And so when you get to uh, Eve and the creation of Eve, very first time, you see a creation act by division followed by union. Read it with me in verse 22, still in chapter 2. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See the division? And then... The union, the covenantal union. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, we could cheat if we wanted to. We could just go to the New Testament and you can see Paul do this, right? You know when Paul talks about marriage? I love, I love it when he does this because he's like, uh, he quotes our verse, he says, therefore a man shall, in Ephesians 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, our verse, and then it's like he can't hold it in. You know, he, he, know, he knows what's going on, he knows this is always talking about the covenant head, his bride helper, the unitedness, the bringing forth of the consummated union and how this is all fulfilled in Christ and in the church, and so he's like, ah, oh, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church, but I am getting ahead of myself. I'm going to pull it back and we will come back yet to this Adam and Eve thing. Because all I want you to see right now is that there is in this inbuilt mirroring covenantal image an expectation of union, consummated union, which points forward to the vertical consummated union that Adam and Eve are expecting. Now what would it have looked like if they just keep going and don't sin, you know? And in some ways, you've got to be careful because it is, a, you know, it's in the realm of speculation. In fact, if you want to impress your friends, um, it's called hypothetical, pathological eschatology. You don't have to remember that. But you can if you want to. It's very cool too. You know, people will think you cool if you—no, <laughs> uh, they won't, sorry. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful to speculate to the point that we can understand and just think and meditate about what was lost, you know? Uh, now, you know I was going to quote Klein somewhere, and uh, I don't even fight it anymore. I just do it now. Um, and, and he was one of the most helpful guys I've ever read on this exact point, this kind of thinking about what it he uses redemptive history to guide him, and then he just thinks, this is what it could have been. He says, Fulfillment of man's cultural stewardship would thus begin with man functioning as princely gardener in Eden. But the goal of his kingdom commission was not some minimal, local life support system. It was rather maximal, global mastery. The cultural mandate put all the capacity of the human brain and brawn to work in a challenging and rewarding world. To develop the original paradise into a universal city. Right? And then, and then he says, like, at the end, there'll be this epiphonic flash, also a cool wo- word. And, uh, and then the end comes and the Sabbath glory is unveiled and so forth. And, and what, what's so good about that to see is that, you know, as Gerhardus Fass was so famous for saying, that there is an eschatology even before the fall, there, before soteriology. And, and Dr. Fesco, puts it so well when he says eschatology the idea of the age to come is not something that enters the stage of redemptive history in the days immediately preceding the return of Christ right just a New Testament thing rather in pre-redemptive history before the fall the covenant of works this time that we've been talking about was laden with the promise of eschatological life and awaited Adam's successful probation but that was the problem right there, the probation. We know He didn't make it. We know He was not successful, which brings us to the fourth thing we need to look at, and that is the tragedy of the fall and how that really shapes our understanding of the two ages now and the age in which we live. And here's the real value, again, of of thinking about what was lost. We know Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, but what was lost, right? And and you just get a little glimmer of it. Whoa! And you can kind of feel the gut punch. of of that tragedy of the fall. I mean, my goodness, not only did Adam not image his maker, but he does the very opposite. Uh, He mars the image. He joins the rebellion. He sins against God. He commits idolatry and transgresses the covenant. But really, here's the tragedy. He falls short of the glory of God. Now, we always think about that ethically and ontologically and so forth. And, you know, but it's it's, it's a historical falling short as well. Right? We, don't, we, don't, we didn't make it. Right? There's the end. There's the Sabbath. It's glorious. And we have fallen short because of that rebellion in Adam. And so rather than enter into that glorious age to come, I mean, there's just a fearful expectation of judgment. And like man is chained to this age, like a leash holding him here bound to this age by death, and after death comes judgment. And really, such a dramatic portrayal of it in Genesis 3. So let's go there, Genesis three twenty two. Um, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's, re- it's really dramatic and profound. I mean, what's happening there is this angelic guardian is keeping man from reaching out and taking of this fruit that he might live in Hebrew, literally to the chai olam, life unto the age, right? If, this is now not open to him anymore. And this age, in addition to this temporal reality, with the covenant of works and its sanctions and its curses now activated, so to speak, carries also this this death and this anticipation of judgment. Firstly, even in the best scenario, man is never going to be able to do the work that he's is written on his heart. He can't do it. He can't have dominion. He will not have dominion. Why? Because the earth will now have dominion over him. Right to dust he will return. No matter what he tries the earth will always win. He won't have dominion over the earth. Right? That, that is the first thing, which means that, like the author of Ecclesiastes, everything just becomes vanity and futile and the, the, the creation. Paul uses the same word that the Greek Old Testament translates, vanity. Uh, he uses it for futility. The Creation has been subjected to futility. All is vain. No matter what I try. Why? Because... There is certain death, certain judgment. And when that judgment comes, the end of history still will happen. But it will not bring with it this glorious Sabbath that was originally in view, but rather the fiery sword of God's wrath now separating and keeping, separated forever, man, from God's eternal glorious dwelling. And every week that goes by is a reminder of that. Saturday, Saturday, the failure, the failure. So the situation is dire, and it would be total despair, total bad news, if it was not for these precious, precious words in Genesis 3.15. The first gospel promise, which shows that there is still a way to enter into that glorious realm, God's redemptive plan, which means all the way to this day, we're still talking about it because there is still hope because of what God will do. Genesis 3.15, I will put, this is in the context of the curse, of course, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Shining as the only hope for mankind at that point. What God is saying is that there will be another one who comes to do what you have failed to do and he will crush the head of the serpent, certainly. And he will bring you into this destiny, right? And we know that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. But now we we get a sense of context for it. What was lost? What are we entering into? What is the Son of Man going to do for us? He's going to bring us into not just the garden, not just back into probation, we don't want that. We want the thing that Adam failed to enter into. We don't want to just fall short again. We want to enter into the glory. And that's what's being promised. That's what Adam and Eve are thinking about. That's what's in view. And, of course, we know the story, Genesis three twenty one to foreshadow that. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Right? And remember those, are, I like to point out, those aren't just like another little Little short, little shorts, or something. They're, they're full-on k'tonet is the is the Hebrew full priestly garments, right? Fully covered through blood sacrifice and substitution already in view. But the point that's easily missed is that remember, chapter two, verse three. God said that He had now entered into Sabbath rest, and no longer is He making and creating those two synonymous words, asah in the Hebrew and bara. Right And and the, the idea is that he steps in and begins, after he has said he would enter into rest, to work again. So think about that. He is beginning a work. He is interrupting his own Sabbath to begin a work, a new work, a new creation work, we might even say, so that we might have rest. So the substitution is all over the place. And um, I think I think this is what's going on in um, in the Gospels when you know when Jesus is doing his miracles on the Sabbath, like he goes out of his way to do these miracles on the Sabbath. He knows it's going to take a lot of people off, right? And he does it. And obviously, it's, you know, thinking about Sabbath, you can see why. Here he is healing someone, giving a first fruit, a kind of foretaste of the blessing that will come in the Sabbath glory and realm, right? And then we know the story with the. Little Pharisee guys, they come along and they just want to catch him on a technicality and just it's so crazy. But the way he responds, he says, My father is working until now, and I am working. Wow. What's actually happening there is he's referring to this very early point where God interrupts His own Sabbath rest to begin making again, to begin working, to begin the new creation, a work from which there can be no resting until all is completed in the promised Messiah of Genesis 3.15. And when He comes, then we will have the rest that He works on our behalf. But rather than embrace it, I mean, think about it. They're looking straight at Jesus as He's saying, I am the one. I'm the one that's doing that. I am the promised seed. I've come to br- I am working so that you can enter into rest. And they want to get them on a technicality. Whoa. Now, why do you think? Well, that's kind of a downer to end on. And I've got to end. But for me, that's the most sobering way to drive home the importance of this doctrine. They were blind to this. This age and the age to come and the hope of the saints. They were blind to it. But we cannot be blind. Not to this. Not to this one. This is not a nerdy doctrine for the corner, right? This is the thing. We cannot be blind to this one. We have to have this front and center. This is the hope of the saints. We have to be, in a sense, like Adam and Eve, Right? I mean, there they are. My goodness, who would have known better about the problem of the fall than Adam and Eve? There they are. They know that, I mean, if Eve's thinking about, or Adam's thinking about his wife, you know, she's the mother of the dead. It sounds like a zombie movie or whatever, but it's like, you know, it really is. Like he, 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 She is the mother of the dead, and yet we know he, he is this promise. And his eyes are bright with faith, and he says, I will call her Chavah. Life. For see, we've done nothing to deserve this. Nothing. But now life will come. Why? Because there will be a worthy one, a promised seed, one who does what I failed to do, one who doesn't just bring us back into paradise, but brings us into that eschatological glory. The one who would die for our sin, and the one. Would at the end of it all make a way for us. One more quote from Klein and then I'll wrap up. He says, talking about the tree of life, and what Klein tries to do in this is blend the way it all works out in Jesus and the way it kind of starts out with this eschatology in view. So I really love the way he words this. It's got a hyphen in it and everything. Um, <laughs> but you can see the value of his hyphenated words now. So, don't, you know, this is the this is one of the reasons I like this. He says, the creator, Lagos hyphenated, right? Now think about it. He wants you to think about something there. The creator, Lagos in the beginning, invited man coming in the worthiness of a keeper of the covenant to partake of the sacrament, tree of life. Take, eat, this is my life. Offered unto you. Right? Now you see what Klein wants you to do there. He wants you to realize that oh, that tree, that tree was pointing to what Jesus, I mean there Jesus dies again. On the tree, a king amongst thieves, as we know how the sun goes. Fulfilling all of these things so that he indeed could be the worthy covenant keeper and could offer the tree of life which was Christ and what he did for us all along. And that's why the tree of life is at the end in the book of Revelation. It's all been God's plan to bring us through to that final glorious, glorious realm of eternity. We come every Lord's day, if we take communion every Lord's day, to the table. And we experience the fulfillment of these things. Let me close on the minute with one One beautiful hymn that I love so much, and I think it sort of encapsulates this. John dons hymn to God. He says, and this is just such a beautiful way to end and respond. So respond with me as I read this, because this is what we want to do. He writes, Christ's cross and Adam's tree stood in one place. So Lord, look. Look. And find both atoms met in me. But as the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, I pray, may the lost Adam's blood my soul embrace. Amen? In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.